I think the most important thing in this context is really for ecologists, academic ecologists, to really embrace humans as organisms, as opposed to humans as not organisms. And in that sense, we have a lot of catching up to do with the philosophers and the humanists. At the same time, the humanists and the philosophers who work on what is called animal studies or plant studies and are thinking about expanding these boundaries, to be fair, they have a lot of biology to learn too. So there's a lot of opportunity for interdisciplinary work and cross-fertilization of ideas that can contribute to this. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode, I talk to Aaron Allison, Senior Research Fellow Emeritus in Ecology at Harvard University. He's also a photographer, sculptor, and writer. Aaron Allison was a fellow at SCAS during the spring of 2022, working on a book project with a working title, Escaping the Crucible, the emergence of a new ecology from the ashes of romanticism. And this is the second episode in our theme, the Anthropocene. Very welcome to SCAS Talks, Aaron. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Thanks, Natalie. Thank you for the, the introduction. I have been fortunate or privileged to spend my entire life and career working in various academic institutions. I've basically been in colleges or universities without a break since I was 17 years old. And it has given me sort of the classic ivory tower perspective on the world. There's not much impinging of reality in the ivory tower. And so a lot of the things we'll talk about today, a lot of the ways I think about the world, about ecology, about people's role in the world, and about all the other species on the planet is really informed by four decades of work divorced in many ways from reality. Certainly, I've had opportunities to travel and work all over the world, which has been wonderful and fortunate, but actually having to engage in detail with the nitty-gritty and the many of the challenges throughout the world, I just haven't really had to do that. Very briefly, what is your research about? The sort of 30-second elevator pitch of what my research does is I study and, and have studied for, for my entire research career, I've studied how ecosystems, ecological systems are organized, how all the pieces of them work together, how this organization is changed, and how these systems sort of disintegrate and fall apart following different kinds of perturbations disturbances, whether they're caused by people or predators or natural events like ice storms and hurricanes, and then how these systems reorganize and continue to function in whatever different ways or the same ways as ecological systems. And so I've worked on this topic with plants, with insects, in forests, in wetlands, and on every continent except Antarctica in terms of my research. 
And so one of the things you do is that you explore different thoughts about landscape and nature, if I've understood correctly. Right. So ecologists have this, and most of the rest of us have this idea that as people, we exist somehow outside of nature. And so we study nature, we use nature, we talk about aspects of natural systems, we talk about things as resources. You wouldn't talk about your friends as resources. We talk about our friends, our colleagues as individuals, as people with names and positions and functions and likes and dislikes. But all the other creatures we share the planet with are essentially resources. And we put those in this box that we call nature. So ecologists study primarily all the things that aren't people. When I was a graduate student in the 1980s, we didn't even have a discipline that we now call urban ecology or human ecology uh, in the way we think about it now. We had ecology, and ecologists went to what we used to call study obscure organisms in pristine sites. We called it oops ecology. And so we would go off to the mountains into nature to look at landscapes and study all the creatures that live there. And then we would come back to our universities, our departments, and we would write about it and we would bring these observations. So the idea here is nature is out there. It's something that isn't us and that it's organized and put together in particular ways. You have a bunch of organisms that interact in populations and communities and ecosystems on a landscape that we can view. And if we think back to where the idea of landscape came from, in part, it's about something outside of us that we look at. Those landscapes, when you put them all together and we stand on a mountaintop and look at them, that's nature. Now, I would argue that I I don't think that's a very constructive way to think about nature and landscape, but in terms of the way that nature and landscape are commonly thought about and commonly portrayed. If you think about like a David Attenborough television series or, you know, a landscape painting in an art gallery, that's what we think about uh, in terms of nature and landscape. So how should we think? You said you have a different view on this. I do have a different view of this, and and it's something that has evolved over the course of my work and the course of my time on this planet. Part of it comes from the observation or the idea that essentially people are just another animal. Humans are just other animals. We do the same things that other animals do. We eat. We're not plants, so we don't photosynthesize, so we have to prey on other things in order to get energy, right? Whether we grow those things and then eat them, whether we grow plants and feed them to animals, which we then prey on and eat. We interact, we compete, we help other creatures, we help other humans, we compete with other humans, we compete with other animals and plants for resources. We are driven just like any other plant or animal or bacteria or fungus. We're programmed to reproduce, although we often say we can choose whether to reproduce or not. Functionally, people work just like other organisms. They reproduce in in their self-interest and make 
more copies of themselves. And so we basically work like like other animals. And if we work like other animals, we should be able to think about how we work and how we interact with each other and with climate or with the world around us, just like any other animal does. And the same rules that apply to animals, natural selection, evolution, all the other pieces, competition, altruism, any of these things should apply just as much to people as they do to other animals and plants. And so if that's the case, then putting this wall up between or this boundary up between us and everything else seems very artificial. So my view is that people really are within nature, not outside of nature. And so if we're in nature and interacting with nature, then this idea that components of nature like landscapes are something that we look at to use the the postmodernist term that we gaze at and we project our own ideas on this notion that this this landscape is out there for us to watch and do things seems counterproductive if we're actually trying to figure out how we can effectively work like any other creature on this planet now of course one can argue or one can ask the question, are we really thinking about that or are we just doing it just like any other animal? That's a whole nother direction one could explore in terms of what really makes people and their consciousness different from animals or plants. And there are lots of scholars in the humanities and philosophy who are thinking about that and come to very similar conclusions that you know, plants, animals, they have different kinds of consciousnesses that we may not appreciate particularly because we're so stuck on looking at ourselves as somehow different. And if we think about ourselves as very similar to all these other creatures in a biological or evolutionary sense, then maybe we need to expand how we think about consciousness too. And that leads to all sorts of other things that we would have to deal with, like rights and values that if you're spending all your day eating something else, you may not want to think about. I did a little experiment this weekend uh, talking about landscape and how you can perceive it. Uh, I was outside with my cats and I was looking for them. They were in, in the bushes exploring that universe. So I was looking for them. So I was crawling on the ground, essentially. And I mean, my garden looked, of course, completely different from, from that height. That's a really great observation because one of the things that we see in people and that I know many of my colleagues try to think about is how you view the world and interact with the world at different scales, whether it's it's a very small scale or a very big scale, you know, whether you're looking at satellite data from space or whether you're crawling on your hands and knees in, in your garden. And of course, little children are walking around and crawling around and seeing the world in that, in that way. And it's a very, very different space to be in. And I think one of the interesting things about working in the field, in the woods, on the mountains, whatever, is that you're constantly confronted with the perception that there is a larger world outside of you or that you are embedded in. 
And you have to appreciate and think about where you fit in that picture. And as soon as you start thinking about where you fit in that picture, as opposed to being outside of that picture, your whole worldview changes. And when you're crawling around under a bush, like you say, you know, trying to find your cats or trying to, you know, avoid a snake or whatever it is, your whole view of how you fit into that space that you're in changes very dramatically. It's a great thing to do. Put your mind into being what a cat is thinking about as it's going on. There is this term, nature and balance. Does such a thing exist? Do you have any thoughts on that? That's part of the book project I was working on at SCAS and something that I've been working and thinking about for at least 14 or 15 years. And certainly if you ask just about anyone you run into, whether in an academic department, in an ecology department, or the closest cafe where you pick someone at random, and you say, is nature in balance? The most common response, and I've done this in surveys, formal surveys in lectures to artists, to humanists, to philosophers, to scientists, as well as just asking random people on the street, as well as reading the newspaper and the, the general media. The common response is, well, nature was in balance and people messed it up. That's the sort of received view, as it were. The standard wisdom is that nature was in balance. And if you go to wilderness out in real nature, you'll see what's left of nature, what nature could be in balance. Or if we rewild it or restore an ecosystem, we can bring this balance back that somehow humans messed up. And this is a very deeply held belief. From my perspective as an ecologist who has studied and continues to study how organisms interact with each other and how they interact with climate, if we think about balance as things staying more or less the same for a long period of time, the answer is no, nature is not in balance, right? The world is not in balance. It's probably never been in balance and it probably never will be in balance unless there's absolutely no life at all on the planet. It's just like a solid sphere of glass that might be in balance. But what we have with life interacting on the stage of the planet is a constantly changing, very exciting, very dynamic system. This is an episode within our theme, the Anthropocene. How do you think about this term, Anthropocene? Well, I try not to. That's a bit sarcastic or cynical. As I think about how I think about nature and how I think about landscapes in nature, if we're really serious about putting people into nature, then to me, the idea of the Anthropocene doesn't actually hold a lot of water. Because the idea of the Anthropocene reinforces this notion of people as somehow special and outside of the rest of life on this planet, that we're so important 
that we're so dominant on this planet that we affect the geology and the climate. Now, we certainly, our activities have impact on the climate and have impact on the geology. One could argue that plants have as big an impact on the climate, right? Plants are taking carbon dioxide out, not all of it that we put in, and they put oxygen into the atmosphere that all the current animals use to breathe. But we don't talk about the phylocene, the plantocene, right? And in part, we don't think about this because that's resources and that's nature and that's outside of us. But in part, we don't do that because these ideas about these particular ages, they're very embedded and derived from the way geologists think about the world. And so they look at and define these ages based on key geological markers that are likely to outlive the organisms or persist beyond the particular organisms involved. And those organisms are us too. The division between the Triassic and the Cretaceous when the dinosaurs disappeared, we don't call it the, you know, dinosauricene and then the mammalocene. The distinction is a layer of iridium that you can find all around the planet that presumably was laid down following a giant impact of a meteor. And each of these particular geological ages, epochs, strata are indicated by something that persists in rocks that lasts a very, very, very long time, much longer than people have been around on this planet. And so if we're going to have something we call the Anthropocene, we need to find something like that. And maybe we have it with the signature of nuclear weapons and, and nuclear testing from the 1940s through the, through the 1960s, maybe. But more importantly, I think that calling something the Anthropocene centers humans to an extent that I think is really counterproductive if we're actually serious about an ecology and a worldview where people are not at the middle of things, that we're just another organism on Darwin's bush of life. Let's talk a little bit about your book project then that you worked at uh, last spring when you were here. So it's called Escaping the Crucible, the emergence of a new ecology from the ashes of romanticism. Do you want to tell us a bit more about this? Let me start by saying that when I talk about ecology in the context of this project, I am thinking about what academic ecologists working in biology departments or ecology and evolution departments actually do for a living and what we think about. And there's a distinction between what in the book I call ecology with a capital E, which is that very small, narrow, academic discipline. And what ecology with what I use as a lowercase e has evolved into 
essentially since the end of the Second World War, but really came to great prominence in the 1960s and 1970s, where ecology now refers to just about anything that anyone wants to think of as a social good. We basically put the prefix eco on things to make us feel green about it and by extension good. So that's not what I'm talking about here in this book. What I'm trying to think about is how the discipline of ecology crystallized in the late 19th century. And it crystallized at a time when, even though in the in philosophical and humanistic areas of the academy, romanticism was already being eulogized and said, this is dead and, and past and we're we're moving on to the modernist train here. The individuals who put together the discipline of ecology came right out of the romantic ideals of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And then these individuals in forming the initial main ecological societies, scientific societies, initially in Britain in 1913 and the United States in 1915, how these ideas, these philosophical ideas that they brought to the table became reified in the discipline and have persisted for the next you know, 100 or so years so that ideas like nature out there that we gaze on from a mountaintop, things like you would get out of paintings of Caspar David Friedrich or writings of Emerson and Thoreau, those sorts of, of examples, have persisted in the discipline. And despite the fact that as ecologists, we study dynamics, we study change, we study evolutionary processes, and we see in the data that humans work like other animals in terms of evolution, that we don't see evidence for balance in nature, as we would expect in a romantic conception of the universe. And yet we can't shed that. We can't get that idea out of what we think about. So we, we much more talk about stable states and stability in nature. When we are asked by an environmental manager, how do I manage this population? We always write a prescription essentially for keeping it the same. We manage for stability and what technically we would call stationarity of a system that is long-term unchanging. You can always get the same amount of timber out every year. You can always get the same amount of fish every year. Even though our data say that can't happen, our philosophical ideals reified 100 years ago say that's what we need to do. And so I'm trying to both understand where that came from and think about that, and then think about how we can reconstruct the discipline of ecology to with what we would have when we abandon a romantic worldview. And it's very hard because, you know, I grew up in this, I share a lot of these romantic ideals that it's hard to shed. One of the key observations about this that I spent a lot of time while I was at SCAS 
thinking about was that much of the ecological societies in Britain and in the United States were established right before the First World War. And the First World War is a really important fulcrum for changes in the worldview, in the humanities, and in the arts. You have people who, before the First World War, were working in a very romantic vein, or at least a very comfortable vein. And then after the World War, you look at their paintings, their writings, and you have a complete turnover of this. So the the people who went and fought in the trenches, the artists, the philosophers, they come back and they write poetry that is completely different. I saw an exhibition the other week in Stuttgart of Otto Dix's post-World War I paintings, and they're horrifying. And yet you compare them with what he was doing before World War I, and it's like by a completely different person. What is particularly interesting, at least in the context of the, the book project, none of the founders of the major ecological societies and virtually none of the members at the time of these ecological societies served in the First World War. And if you read through the minutes of their meetings during the First World War and what they're continuing to do research on, it's as if the war didn't ever happen. It's like this was something over there that we can cheerfully ignore while we look at our plants, that we'll be run our excursions. There was a little bit of concern that, well, we're not getting as much, you know, we have to figure out how to get our membership dues to keep things going. There are one or two eulogies for, you know, a graduate student who went to serve and was killed, but it basically had no impact. And so there's no break in the way that ecologists think about the world before and after the First World War in the same way that there is this dramatic break in worldviews in the arts and humanities and social sciences before and after the First World War. After the Second World War, which is when the Nordic Society for Ecology was founded in 1949, I believe, there are a lot of ecologists who go to work and are supported by the Atomic Energy Commission in the United States and are contributing in lots of ways to the rebuilding of, particularly in Europe, of the social democratic societies in Europe. And ecologists, capital E ecologists, are brought into the little e ecology social programs beginning after the Second World War. But then there's this big break between academic ecologists and ecologists working in the social realm where the academic ecologists say, no, we can't do that. You know, we're academics. We don't dirty our hands with this. And you going to do this is profane. There are exceptions to this, but a classic example in the United States, Victor Shelford, who was one of the founders of the Ecological Society of America, went on to found the Nature Conservancy in the United States after the Second World War as a way to really 
do conservation work and bring ecology into a more public facing realm. And the Ecological Society of America basically passed a resolution that said, we don't do this. This is not what we do. And, and I spent some time at the Shelford Archives last year in Illinois, and you read the correspondence, and Shelford is just unbelievably hurt and upset by how his colleagues have responded to this. And he's like, well, you know, this is, this is really important. And I'm going to move in this direction, even if you don't think I should do this. But the prevailing idea at the time, and really goes into the 1980s and 1990s, is that that's just much too profane and we don't do that. And so this whole book project really explores the narrow window of time from the late 1800s through just after World War One in terms of how ecology as a discipline got crystallized. It gets burned in the crucible and solidified there. And then what we do with this now, how we bring a, a modernist and a postmodernist and a unbalanced approach to the discipline, in a sense, without compromising its academic integrity. I mean, part of me, you know, as a citizen, I'm perfectly happy to be out walking picket lines, but as a academic scientist, as an ecologist, there's a core intellectual aspect to this that is important, but that needs to confront the data and deal with the data in the theories as opposed to wish it away. Interesting. So what can you do then? I don't know. The book's not done yet. Probably have another year or two and some more archival work to finish it off. I don't know, to be perfectly honest. I think the most important thing in this context is really for ecologists, academic ecologists, to really embrace humans as organisms, as opposed to humans as not organisms. And in that sense, we have a lot of catching up to do with the philosophers and the humanists. The same time, the humanists and the philosophers who work in what is called animal studies or plant studies and are thinking about expanding these boundaries, to be fair, they have a lot of biology to learn too. So there's a lot of opportunity for interdisciplinary work and cross-fertilization of ideas that can contribute to this. Very well. Sounds like it, like a perfect project for SCAS, actually. I think so. I think so. You were also an artist, photography, amongst other things. How does that influence your own view on nature and your work as an ecologist? I think the interesting thing about, particularly about photography, is that you're looking at things. You put this object between you and what you're looking at, and you try to derive meaning from that. And one of the things that I've been working on for the last few years now, is trying to, as we go back to what it's like to be a cat, trying to think about and trying to use photography, and in particular, hyperspectral photography, that is imagery in wavelengths that we actually can't see, 
to start opening a window on how other things, other creatures, plants, other animals see the world, how they experience the world. And in doing that, trying to decenter myself and decenter people from how we look at the world. If you can, as a first step, you can say, well, how would a cat see the world? What wavelengths does a cat see? Does the cat see differently? Much akin to Ed Young's recent book about how animals sense so many different ways and different things from how people do and starting to decenter humans. And of course, then we don't really need the Anthropocene anymore. We need some other kind of way to have other things not be centered either so that no particular organism is privileged in that world. And so that's what I think about as an artist. And it has led me down the road to thinking about how we think about aesthetics from a non-anthropocentric perspective, how we think about just a worldview that doesn't put us front and center or in the middle. So you were a scholar at SCAS in the spring of 2022. What was your experience of this multi- and interdisciplinary research environment? It was a fabulous five months at SCAS. What was really great about working at SCAS was having so many scholars in so many different disciplines all talking to each other and being able to learn about what each other do and the different languages, both intellectual languages and, of course, human languages that we all share and speak, to have those different perspectives, listen to them, hear them, try to understand how all these different ways of looking at the world give a much richer way of thinking about the world. And it's a very open, collegial environment in which to do that. You know, every scholar should have an opportunity to be in such a free-thinking, freewheeling, fabulous environment for sharing ideas that I've never had anywhere else. So it was great. Thank you very much for talking to me and to our listeners. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. In this episode, I have talked to Aaron Allison, Senior Research Fellow Emeritus in Ecology at Harvard University and also Fellow at SCAS during the spring of 2022. We have talked about his current book project with the title Escaping the Crucible, the emergence of a new ecology from the ashes of Romanticism. You can find more about the work of Aaron Allison on his homepage, unbalancedecologist.net. This was the second episode in our theme, The Anthropocene. In the previous episode, within this theme, we heard Gisli Palschon, Professor Emeritus in Anthropology at the University of Iceland, about the discovery of extinction. 
The list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing, reflecting the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. Find your favorite topic or surprise yourself with something new. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCAS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. SCAS Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Aaron Ellison once again for talking to me and thanks to you for listening. Bye for now.